Running a pet business is no walk in the park. I've been there, done that, and sure have the campfire stories to prove it. That's why Pet Boss Nation created Camp Pet Boss, where you can relax at a beautiful lake, refuel your leadership confidence with our in-person activities, and reignite your passion for the pet business of your dreams with your pet industry peers and trusted experts. Camp Pet Boss is a one-of-a-kind business retreat that mixes conference learning sessions and camp-like activities for pet professionals and their dogs. When was the last time that you got away from your business, unplugged from the chaos, and reconnected with your inner entrepreneurial spirit? And I hope that you heard me, that your furry best friend could be there too. Get ready for the most amazing and unique in-person adventure for pet business owners and their dogs, happening this summer in Lake Delton, Wisconsin, August 27th through the 30th of 2024. Tickets will sell out, and one building is already booked solid, So I want you to hit pause on this podcast and visit camppetboss.com right now to make sure that you have a room reserved. Your ticket price includes all food, lodging, and seminars. Need another reason to secure your ticket early? How about a massive discount of savings of $850 off your ticket? That's right. Early bird pricing is happening right now, but not for much longer. And I can't wait to hang out with you at camp this summer and share all those juicy pet boss stories around the campfire. From hauling dog food bags and talking canine health issues with pet parents to now hitting the books and working on her PhD, my guest on today's podcast is an inspiration for many independent pet retailers and a vocal advocate for quality control and transparency in pet food nutrition. Nikki Kamek is here diving into the variety of topics with me like DCM, raw food pathogens, issues with the pet industry groups, and even women in STEM. It's jam-packed, so stay with us. Welcome to the Boss Your Business Podcast, the show for the local pet business owner. If you have a physical building, carry inventory, have a team, or dream of having one someday, then this podcast is for you. You'll hear honest conversations from pet pros work in the streets of Main Street, where dog business is big business. I'm your show host, Candice Daniolo, the founder of Pet Boss Nation and a pet business coach. I've started, scaled, and sold three successful pet businesses, and now help mentor thousands of pet professionals to see success faster together. I'm sharing my favorite business tips with you, mixed with the latest secrets of what's working now, especially in this challenging world. So if you're a pet supply store, grooming salon, dog daycare, boarding facility, pet sitter, dog trainer, or really anyone covered in fur, let's get started. Nikki Kamek is here. She's the founder and owner of multiple award-winning North Point Pets and Company in Connecticut, USA, a large independent pet retail location offering a wide range of high-quality diets, treats, supplements, and more for dogs and cats. Plus, they offer self-wash and nutritional counseling. Nikki has already completed her undergraduate work in biological sciences, business, and holds an MS in nutrition. Currently, she is pursuing a PhD in comparative biomedical sciences with a focus on canine nutrition and metabolomics at the prestigious University of Georgia, right here in the USA. Well, welcome Nikki to our Pet Boss podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're excited to have you here because, and gosh, I feel like a fairly short 
pet industry career compared to how long some people have been in this industry, you have tackled so much in this short amount of time. I love it. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes it feels like a lifetime, but yeah, <laughs> I guess it's been a short amount of time. Well, you know, you really are a true leader and someone who pushes towards your goals. And you're at a point now where you've got this 6,500 square foot retail store that's currently running without you. And it's allowing you to focus on getting your PhD. So what's that experience been like for you? <laughs> Honestly, it, if I'm honest, I haven't had a ton of time to really think about what that's like. What I always tell everyone when they kind of ask, like, how did you set yourself up to do that? yes, like the plan was always to keep furthering education and try and change some of the pain points that we see both on the pet industry side, as well as the medicine side. And the whole reason I was able to do it was because of COVID. And it was like by accident where, you know, I was going into the store every day and like trying to help everyone do their jobs and, and get everything done. It was kind of my team that was like, go home. Like, we're fine. We can do this without you. In fact, we do a better job without you. So they kind of allowed me to start working from home more, focus on other projects that are related to the pet industry, but not necessarily under the umbrella of North Point. And as I got more and more involved in some of those extra projects, I realized that they really didn't need me for the day to day. I absolutely am still involved in strategy. You know, I'm still involved in overall high level stuff, but the day-to-day -day things that come up, my team is phenomenal at handling. It really is important to have the best team there to support you and your vision because when you have the right souls and the right roles, as they say, it allows you to step back and start to get that confidence that they can handle it without you. For myself, even I wanted to build Pet Boss Nation, but at the same time, I had a doggy daycare and I really had to trust that the team could handle difficult situations, just how like we handled it when we were first starting out and trying to figure it all out. Right. It might not be perfect, but at least no. um, learning is happening. Right. No. And that's like the big thing. I think, you know, as business owners, you know, you want, it's your baby, like you want to control everything. But then when you start thinking about how you learned and how you got to the spot that you're in, you realize that you made more mistakes and had more failures and successes, but those failures are responsible for the way that you run things, the way that you think, the way that you're now able to forecast and see, you know, one month, three months, six months, 10 years down the line and have that end goal in mind. And so what I became, maybe my team might not agree with me, but I think really good at doing, and I say not good because they hate it, is I give them almost all the time enough rope to hang themselves. And I let them hang themselves. I let them make mistakes. Yeah. When I, every time when I kind of go back and I'm like, well, I let you do that. They're like, oh, but they learn. Yeah. And I think if you're comfortable or in a position where you have a little bit of a cushion to be able to allow them to experience teachable moments, it really, it sets a, sets a nice foundation for, for the business. Yes. Yes. I agree. 100%. A lot of us get into the industry because we are all passionate about pets or like one particular pet gets us, gets us here for you. That was your pit bull taser. Can you share more about <laughs> the beginning of your journey? Yeah. So I, and I always say that I'm like, like everyone else in the industry, I had a sick dog. And he was a little pity puppy, about five months at the time. I got him from not a very uh, good place in New York City. And this 
like woman just kind of handed them to me and was like, best of luck. I think I handed her like $200 cash. He was great dog for about a week. And then he was really, really sick. His history was that he was a bait dog. His history is really experience with other dogs was not good. So he was very fearful, but his health was also a problem. So he started having really significant GI issues to the point where when he was about nine months old, my veterinarian at the time told me to just take him home and, you know, enjoy the next week or so with him because he wasn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it's a puppy. Like, what do you mean? He's not going to make it. And I was trying, you know, every prescription food to over the counter to, at least I thought everything. And then I was introduced to a raw diet and it was like a 180 almost overnight. I mean, it wasn't that quick, but it was quick. Uh, his vigor was back and he, I mean, he's laying actually on the floor next to me. He's 13 years old. So he's, you know, I, I think phenomenal reason to poke more at nutrition and the importance of nutrition, both for our health and well-being, but also for animals. Cause there's really no there's no question that when they're fed appropriately, I've got another 13 year old dog sitting on my lap. They don't look 13. They don't act 13. Um, they don't have any of the same common issues that in general kibble fed dogs or processed feed dogs will have. So there's something there. And I, I wanted to figure out what that was. Mm -hmm. And at the time, was it easy for you to access raw food or did you really have to go on a hunt? It was a little harder because yeah, I mean, it's over a decade ago. So a lot of things were not in pretty packaging. It was not in patties and niblets and things like that. It was bulk boxes. I used to think it was expensive then. And yeah, it, it was, it was different. It took some work for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And then what led you to open up North Point Pets? Yeah. So I was working on the human side at the time, clinical trials I had, had done a lot of work cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. And around the time I got into the diet changes with taser, I was really burnt out on the human side. I thought there was burnout then. Now I see what a lot of my colleagues and friends have went through with COVID, but it's, you know, similar type of like, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I just, it's crazy. I just quit my really well-paying job and I ended up buying, it was another business at the time that had just opened. It was open for less than a year. And I bought that location. It was like in this disheveled old rental space that was in front of a auto body shop. It had like no visibility from the street, but you know, I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. That was gosh, 2014. 20, mm -hmm. And so you bought somebody else's business. You wanted this career change you jumped right in and picking the products, having all this right now, when we go to your website, your website's beautiful. The Thank store you. is, is beautiful. Your product selection is a fantastic mix. So the journey for you in retail, did it come naturally for you or? Uh... Yeah. I mean, my mom, I grew up with my mom. She owned a flower shop. So I knew, you know, dealing with people was, was the biggest challenge. So no, I mean, I had no retail experience aside from that. I mean, and obviously pet store and floral is very, very different, but I had to just like figure it out. And I just, I still have the attitude where it's like, well, this is a mess. Let's figure it out. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll, you know, build the plan as I'm flying it. And I would argue, I still do that because I do a lot of the things that a lot of people tell you not to do and we're successful for it. So mm -hmm. I 
a lot of the way in the philosophy behind North Point comes from my experience in, in human medicine and nutrition. And a lot of the way that we pick products and the way that we approach the people that come in for help is I'm bringing a lot of the, the knowledge and practice from the human side. And so kind of to your point, when I got in, you know, I started asking questions I would ask on the human side. And it was like, well, I've never been asked that before. And companies, I figured out quickly that it was like the wild west. And I, I just kind of took that as like, I don't know, a problem I wanted to fix. I and mean, I didn't know how. Are you talking about questions you would ask the pet parents and consumers or the products and brands? What no, the-, the products and brands, mm-hmm. you know, everything from like supplements to raw food to you know, the uh, shelf stable pet food on our shelves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I realized really quickly that there was not a whole lot of accountability. Mm. And I bet you've got some defining moments that as a retailer <laughs> pushed you to become more vocal about these standards and the transparency and pet nutrition. Are you open to sharing any of those stories without naming too many names or name names, whatever you <laughs> want to do any light bulb moments you want to yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the biggest one that I remember, I don't know if it was the first, but the biggest one that I remember is the pentobarbital issue with Avengers. That for me was really scary. You know, coming from kind of pharmaceutical background and clinical background, I was like, whoa, like that's, that's a problem. You know, when you start digging around in the agriculture or um, companion animal, and I was like, why aren't these checks and balances there? Why are these things allowed? And, you know, it's kind of different from the questions that Susan Thixton would ask or kind of the, the paths that she would go down to investigate. I was kind of looking at different questions or different avenues. And I saw, not that I'm saying the things that she uncovers aren't problems because they are, but I was seeing different problems. And for me, that's when I was like, oh, that something needs to be done here. Like we need to tighten up, you know, who's coming in. And, you know, I think that also led me and my team to start having that conversation with customers to be like, listen, um, we're not okay with this. This is a problem. This didn't happen by accident. You know, there's a lot of mistakes that happened for us to get here and it's you know, arguably negligent. We're removing it from our shelves. And I don't think there was one person that was like, oh no, no, that's not okay. When you explain to them the totality of the situation, they're like, well, what do I feed? Mm-hmm. And I think that communication largely in the pet industry does not happen, right? So I think retailers are very scared to have those conversations with pet owners and their customers. I mean, of course, they're time consuming. They're hard to have. It's mm-hmm. a huge lift. But when you have that conversation and connection, your customers trust you. And that that builds this level of loyalty that I don't think, you know, any of these online retailers will ever have. And then, you know, you remove a product from your shelf like that. Usually what I'll do is we'll see our sales actually go up. They'll have a higher trajectory after something like that. We had the same thing happen with uh, Earthborn when they had their issues. We pulled all of that product and, you know, we had people coming in saying, I fed Earthborn, but I was getting it from online. And now I want to come to you. What do I feed? Because, you know, my online retailer didn't tell me that there was a problem. And again, it goes back to that communication thing. You have, you have a way to communicate with your customers. Those types of things won't necessarily impact your bottom line. Right. And so just to backtrack a little bit, what you're saying here is when, when recalls happen, or, you know, we even have 
pet sitters and doggy daycares that listen to this podcast too. It's really like probably any hiccup, Mm -hmm. controversy, something that needs to be brought to somebody's attention. And as small businesses, we have these platforms like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok Mm -hmm. or email lists that allow us to communicate and uh, so many people hide behind that and don't use those platforms to do so because they're what afraid of the brand backlash. They're afraid of the customer maybe thinking differently or not agreeing with them or, you know, even veterinarians not agreeing with them. Right. So there is, there's a good reason to be fearful, but to your point, if, if they have the knowledge, if they're getting behind it, they're using the platforms, they can, they, they actually can position themselves more as the expert, as the trusted source. And here's why. Right. Yeah. You can't be afraid of, of doing that stuff. And I, I mean, I'll tell you with as loud as I've gotten towards some of these brands, not one of them has either called or confronted me, but never mind sent an email. You know, I've heard of people being afraid of products being pulled from their shelf. I've never had that happen. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be afraid of those things. And you know what, if a brand is going to do that, well, I would take the screenshot of that email or I would write up, you know, what happened. And I will post that too, because you know, these companies need to have a moral and ethical responsibility to the end user and the end user is the pet. And if they're not going to do that, or if they're going to come after you for exposing that or saying this isn't right, that's not a you problem. That's a them problem. Right. And so in previous conversations before you've said to me things like, there's literally no organization in our industry that's standing out there to prevent independence really and pets truly from being the victim of these bad products and manufacturers moving forward. What do we do here, Nikki? Help me. (laughs) I don't have the bandwidth to do it myself. And I, you know, I, I think some of the other things I'm working on can, can help merge at a later date, but so companion animal nutrition wellness Institute, that is Dr. Karen Becker and Dr. Donna Radicek. And they founded, can we to fund research on companion animal nutrition? Believe it or not, a lot of the nutrition research nowadays is, you know, very, I guess, bland. Um, it's a whole, a lot to do about nothing. And the, the research that we rely on, the large vat of research that we have has been done by the major pet food companies. And this was years ago. And, you know, there's a whole boatload more that we, most of us in the industry know about, but it's not published. So it's kind of, it doesn't have value. So they founded CanMe to, to fund that type of research. So what I always do is direct people to can we to learn a little bit more about the initiatives that they have going on, but also any sort of like direction in terms of fundraising or awareness we as an industry can put toward can we, it, it's going to be, or going to have phenomenal results for everyone in, in the coming years. I mean, I see, you know, some of these organizations like Pet Sustainability Coalition, you have the Indie, Indie Pet, and, you know, there's a couple of others, uh, trade uh, organizations, and you don't have any of them adopting some sort of structure for brands to follow or retailers to utilize to evaluate brands. And I mean, all of us have our own standards. I mean, for the, a lot of people think like, oh, I'm anti Purina and I'm anti Hills or, you know, RC or whatever it is. And I'm not because all of those things have their place. They have their place. And it's more of defining what your standards are as a retailer, and then being able to figure out where you sit and then pick products based off of that. But regardless, you know, there are certain safety and nutritional 
boxes that need to be checked. And these brands that are not validating their products at all, I wouldn't carry them, period. I don't care if you want to carry period or pedigree, but then, you know, this small mom and pop brand, you know, doesn't uh, meet standards that, you know, pedigree could meet. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull them. I wouldn't put them on my shelf. So, you know, it's, and the reason is when you, when a brand is not doing those things. And so when I say nutritional validation, I say, send in that food to the lab. I want to know that at least the minimum nutrients are in that food. The second thing I want to know is, are those nutrients digestible? Because a lot of times things can be in there, whether they're natural or synthetic. A lot of people think that it's just synthetic that is indigestible, but it could be natural as well. I want to know that those those nutrients are being absorbed and used by the pet. And if I don't know those two things, that that's a problem. And that's why at the end of the day, a lot of these recalls happen. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that some of these indie organizations need to set a minimum standard because it's going to prevent a lot of these problems and it's going to protect our businesses. I mean, you look at DCM, that was catastrophic Mm -hmm. for no reason, by the way, but that was (laughs) catastrophic. Right. The impact that it had. We're still dealing with it. Mm -hmm. We're still dealing with it again for no reason, but. Right. So your minimum suggestions for a retailer who's listening right now, who's trying to evaluate consumable products or just food. So it's just food that's coming in or is it treats food. also? Okay. No, you wouldn't necessarily get it on the treats because for, unless like they're putting a supplement in it, you know, you might want to know some information there, but it's just a regular like uh, treat. No, because you, you wouldn't really get a true digestibility off of that. And the means that I'm talking about. Okay. So it's one do they have the minimum nutrients required? And then two per lab test, not per an estimate. That's where a lot of companies will, will trip up. There are a lot of companies that if you email them and ask them, which by the way, I've done it in several capacities now, which is really interesting. And I get different answers, which is problem, but I'll email them and I say, Hey, can I have um, a new uh, nutritional analysis? And they'll email me what's called a targeted nutritional analysis. Targeted nutritional analysis is an estimate by a computer algorithm. I got news for you, computers are wrong often. So what you want is a uh, aggregate value or a lab tested value. And if they're not giving you that, then uh, I would put it on my shelf. And then the other thing you want is a digestibility study. And what you'll often hear is that, oh, these are expensive. You know, we can't do that. Their packaging's more expensive. So that's not, (laughs) that's not an excuse. The other thing you'll hear sometimes is that it's an animal welfare issue. It's not because it's literally just collecting poop. And you send that off to the lab and you analyze that. And that's, that's where we get our digestibility numbers from. So, and those can be done at home. Like I could feed a food to my dogs and collect the poop and, you know, send it to the lab or wherever they want and get it that way. So it's not something that's a barrier. It's not something that's expensive. It's not something I've heard other companies tell me that, oh, well, uh, the big companies have um, restriction and we're not allowed to do digestibility. That's not true either. I can send, send anything off to a couple of different labs that I know and, and get it done myself as a private citizen, if I chose to. Basically what I'm saying is there's no reason for companies at this point not to provide that. So one of the things that you brought up was about DCM and you have done a lot of presentations and research and discussion on this for the pet industry. And we will link to that in our show notes for this episode. You can go to petboss.com forward slash episode 22, and we'll link to that there. So 
What's the number one thing that you want pet professionals to know about DCM? If they are still dealing with it, the topic of it, what's the one thing you want them to know? Yeah. So all, and when I say all, I mean, every single one. Now there's like, maybe a little bit over a dozen of the studies that are out there from the camp that's claiming that this is an issue are all either a extremely small. And so what that means is they can't be applied to the entire canine population, which depending on what stat you want to use is is between 80 and 90 million dogs in the U S there are dozens of dogs, you know, from anywhere from like a half a dozen dogs to dozens of dogs, to in some cases, a few hundred, but those are not what we would call statistically significant. The other issues that we'll see with a lot of those papers is that they, their study design is incredibly flawed for a multitude of reasons. It was clear in a lot of those studies that the veterinarians running them had no idea how to classify So they didn't know the difference between, in in a lot of cases, puppy versus adult versus senior versus a weight control, or they didn't know grain-free from grain-inclusive. They didn't know who manufacturers were. There's one study where they grouped pet food based on the annual revenue of pet food companies. That's not a variable that would dictate whether a certain pet food causes or is related to a disease. The other ones, a lot of them cherry pick their, their subjects or the, the dogs that were utilized for analysis. And they threw away like either the healthy dog. So there was no comparison or the numbers that they're saying have changes again, are not statistically significant. So what I'm saying all of that, what all that means is that a lot of those studies either A, shouldn't have been published because they were terribly designed or B, the numbers are so small that they don't really tell us anything. So the other thing that relates to that is the Dr. Sanderson is the veterinarian that came out and published a paper and said the incidence of DCM in dogs is 0.5 to 1.1% of the population. So if you do the math and you figure out what the number of dogs is, but you know, between 0.5 and 1.1, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, the amount of cases, even if you take the number of cases that were reported to the FDA, not the actual DCM, but every single case that was submitted, not all were DCM, that number still is not even close to 0.5% of the population. So mm-hmm. If this was an issue, we would see a trend with the increase in popularity of grain-free food. We don't. We would see an increase with just the media attention that this issue's gotten. We don't. So it's it's a Mm non-issue. It's a it's an individual dog problem. And it's the same thing that happens in humans. It's it's an issue, but it's not related to the diet. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that for us. Sorry. That was a very long answer. No, it's great. It's great because I know I've got private clients. I still work with where their grain, the grain category, sorry, grain free category in their store is the sales are still down compared yeah. to the other ones. And so they're, they're dealing it with it still. It's a complicated issue. You know, I, I so often I get invites to write articles on this and they're like, Oh, well, can you keep it to like 200 words? I'm like, no, I, you can't that answer to in a bullet point, like not even complete sentence format is, you know, 1500 words. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. So you have published your first peer review study, the low number of owner reported suspected transmission of foodborne pathogens from raw meat-based diets to dogs and or cats. 
with Dr. Ryan Yamaka and veterinarian, Dr. Vicki Adams. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, I am, you're the science girl. I'm the art girl. I can't imagine <laughs> the amount of time it took to put all of that together. That's amazing. Through COVID but yeah. I'm, and by myself, by the way, because yeah, everything <laughs> shut down. So like, I couldn't even meet with them, which was like, for me, I'm a very hands-on person. So that was rough, but in hindsight, what I tell people now on that, cause it's been out like, I mean, I've been working on that since 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, I got published under last year. So in hindsight, that article should have been titled medical community, not testing for pathogens. Mm -hmm. It's not, and I want to be clear. It's not that pathogens are not an issue for raw food because they are, you know, manufacturing is a huge issue. Sourcing is a huge issue. Um, transport storage owner operator error is a huge problem. What we really were looking for was where are these cases? We set out to figure out what the problem was in all of these so-called cases where humans and or animals got sick. And what we wanted to do was then study those cases and determine, all right, well, is it a food issue? Is it a storage issue? Is it a preparation issue? And what was really interesting is that, yes, we had no cases reported worldwide, which is very similar to the results obtained from the dog risk study in Helsinki. But what was so surprising to us is that, you know, veterinarians weren't testing and medical doctors were not, were not testing. When raw food is brought into the conversation, when there is some sort of GI issue, infection is assumed when it's raw food. It's not when it's kibble or uh, other type of conventional type of diet. So that's leading to a bigger problem. One, pathogenic issues from commercial conventional foods are being missed. Second is overuse of antibiotics. And we've got a huge antibiotic resistance issue going on, not just in the States, but worldwide. And that's going to be a, be a big problem for us down the road, just as a, um, as a global population. Um, that was the huge takeaway from this study. Mm. I love it. I love it. I know that our listeners are going to dive into all of this too. They're going to go, if they haven't read it yet, I'm sure that they will go guys go to petboss.com forward slash episode 22. And you can see that study as well for myself. I mean, like I said, I, I'm the art side of things. I loved dance and painting and, <laughs> and like all of the visually fun things. And so for me, some of these concepts and, um, things that are so important in the science world have gone over my head over the years. That's why even at my pet store, I was, you know, I, we had the cute collars and the bakery treats. And when people um, did have serious issues with their canines, you know, we would send them to the, to the other independent pet store in town. And I segue to this and I bring it up because um, I'm just curious if science and technology have always been important to you growing up. And now as a, a woman in STEM, what your journey there has been like and what you'd like to share on that topic. Yeah. So I'm terrible with tech and computers. Like it's embarrassing how bad I am today. I was like actually thinking about this because I was in the lab doing some coding and I was having to like basically tell this huge, like 
machine, you know, what to, what to do with these samples and a code. And I'm sitting here thinking like, if I break this multi-million dollar machine, they're going to kill me. And who also, who let me in here unsupervised, right. <laughs> but yeah, I'm terrible with that stuff, but science, like when I can relate any concept to biochemistry, and I think people, they shut down when you say biochemistry, but biochemistry is like how the body works, how we digest food, what we do with those nutrients, how the, you know, cells metabolize energy, and then how disease happens. Like that to me is just such a fascinating topic. So yeah, I've always, always loved science. I grew up on to be a doctor and a vet and a doctor and then a surgeon and then a vet. And then I realized that nutrition was so much cooler. And then, you know, taking it a step further, I didn't want to like practice nutrition. I wanted to be the one that was like figuring out, all right, well, how can we, how can we figure out how to manipulate the biochemistry of the body so that way we could either turn off disease or prevent it altogether essentially use it as medicine and so that's that's why I am where I am yeah yeah and now you know women in stem that science technology engineering and mm-hmm. mathematics only make up i think about 28% of the stem yeah. workforce and there's big so there's big gender gaps already just in the workforce numbers but even bigger gaps in the higher paying fastest growing jobs like yeah. in computer science and engineering so what advice do you have for somebody who's either thinking about a career change for themselves and wanting to get into that or who are parenting young girls and women to pursue these careers in education? Yeah. So I actually spoke on this topic uh, about a month ago and I think, you know, I, I put a lot of thought into this too. And it's a lot of times hindsight's twenty twenty because I would say, oh, you know, I never had any of that stuff happen to me. And you really don't know that you've had negative experiences until like something affects you. And for me, it was, it was actually unrelated to STEM, but it like kind of caused this like flashback of just a million things. And it was, you know, somebody in passing, it wasn't even somebody that like I was dating or anything like that. And he said to me, I could never date a woman like you. And I was like, oh, you must be thinking like, I, I, he must be like referring to my loud mouth or, you know, something along those lines. And he said, no, he was referring to the fact that I was more educated than him, that I made more money than him. And that, that was like, that was hurtful. And I mean, I don't let many things bother me. And that's something that like stewed in my mind. And so what I thought was like, he's telling me to be less you know, indirectly, he wants me to be less because I, my experience makes him feel small. And I tell this story because I started thinking about things that I've said to other people when, especially when they were young girls. And then I was like, Oh, I've been told a lot of these things too. And they sound like, why would you want to do that? Mm. Or that's really hard or that's challenging. And those types of phrases, especially to young women, I would say in, you know, closer to 10 and then getting into the early 20s, they want to be cool. They want to fit in. They want to do what, you know, everyone else is doing. They want to be accepted and getting into like the nerdy science stuff is not. And it's like, oh, well, that's not cool. I'm going to be dorky or, or whatever. And we, we have to be careful in the way that we respond to other people's dreams or ambitions because like I was not the smart kid growing up I was not top of my class you know I I didn't start getting good grades and really letting the stuff or having the stuff click for me until my mid to late 20s and now I'm in one of the hardest to get into programs on an invite 
any, anyone's got a shot, even if you're not good at math, I'm not good at math, even if you're not good at, you know, certain categories within STEM, and there's a lot, there's still likely a place for you if you have an interest. And that's all you need is an interest in a fire. So just what I, and I, I guess I say it that way, because the whole point is to not put out somebody else's fire. Yes. I love that. Yes. And it, it just, it's a habit. If we've heard these things from our grandparents or parents or neighbors or anybody. And parents do it. Yeah. Like I didn't realize I'm like, Oh gosh, like my mom was probably, you know, God rest her soul. She was probably one of the worst ones. And I didn't realize that until this year. And that's, that's a hard pill to swallow when it's your mother. And I still hear that we get tours come through and you know, I'll be in the office in the lab and I've, I've heard parents say to their kids, Oh, you don't want to do that. That's, that's really hard. And I'm like, yeah. Do you think it's that they, that's almost like a, probably a parent, I'm not a parent, but right now, but like, you want to protect um, them, you want to protect them, right? That fear of failure. So the whole, Oh, that's going to be hard. We don't want you to try something. And then when it doesn't work, you know, you're going to be upset and hurt about it. But the reality is it's like, no, go pay are. They're stopping that person's dream from a potential breakthrough, even not just for, even if that, even if they don't succeed, the exercise of trying to move towards something is a good habit to, you know, practice and build. No, I, I wholly agree. You know, we, we fail all the time and I'm still obviously very new in this field. I always say, I know less than nothing, but you know, it's, it's a series of failures and those failures are what, oh, okay. And you learn something each time, you know, most scientists are a big bouquet of failures. And then you finally like tease something out of it. So yeah, it's not something to be afraid of for sure. Even if it's something that's overwhelming and you think you'll never understand. I mean, I'm there, I'm still there. I'll probably forever be there. That that's what, that's the point, I mm-hmm. guess. I think we missed the point. Yeah. It actually kind of goes right back to the very beginning of this conversation with team and allowing our team to have failures so that they can take on more responsibilities and learn as well. We've kind of come full circle here. Well, as we wrap up today and gosh, thank you so much for being here. I I just would love to know what does the future hold for you? What's, (laughs) what's the future for Nikki? Yeah. So I would love to stay at the university level as a researcher. So there's we're working on a lot of really, really exciting things. And I like think this is where I need to live because it's like, when you say kind of, I guess, come full circle, you know, I set out and I see a problem and it's like, I want to fix the problem. And so like, you kind of keep going up the levels and then you realize I'm not going to fix it going this way. I got to fix it coming this way. And so that's what I, that's kind of, I guess the purpose of like why I'm here and doing what I'm doing. Cause if we can work from the top down and maybe teach veterinarians to think at thing, think about things a little bit differently and approach things a little bit differently and then change the way that we're testing for things and then change the way that we're feeding our pets. All those problems at the bottom are going to start disappearing. Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience of listeners today, our pet business owners and brands and just be confident in yourself. Even if you're wrong, it's okay to be wrong. As long as you admit that you're wrong when you do learn, it's, it's not about having all the answers. I think that there is more value. And I say this even from a a clinical perspective, there is more value in saying, I don't know than always having the answers. The whole point to a lot of things is just knowing where to look or who to ask. And so if you have confidence in, in that your business will be so much better for it. Yes. And on that note, we will share everything that we can with you on our 
PEPBOSS show notes for this podcast so you can connect with Nikki or some of her other highly respected resources that she'd like to share. And again, Nikki, thank you so much for being here. I really value your time and your expertise and your openness and, and uh, just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate it. Guys, I'm just so honored that you are tuning into this podcast. And did you know that we've already reached the top 3% of all podcasts across the globe? It's amazing. We're climbing the charts because of our awesome listeners like you. I know there's still pet professionals out there who need to hear all of our doggone good tips shared on this show. Can you help us find them? You know, how you do that is that when you click to follow the podcast, or the more you download different episodes, or if you choose to leave us a review, those things will help the podcast get pushed out into the world so that more people who need to hear this will find it. Thanks so much for your support. And until we talk next week, stay focused, stay motivated, and go boss your business.